How are you doing? Good? My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. So what do you notice about somebody the first time you meet them? It's a fun question, right? Like right now, here's what I picture you're all thinking about me. What about the glasses? How's the outfit going? Why does he keep pacing back and forth? What's with the hand motions? <laughs> Why is there all of this all the time? Uh, let's see. Oh, the nervous speech patterns. You notice that about each other. Uh, you notice if I would have shown up five minutes after Sarah asked me to come up, you would have noticed that. Um, if I would have just, if I just stand up here and talk about everything that I want to be on my Wikipedia page, you would notice that too. Uh, we, we notice the, the things that you would expect to notice. And if you were to read Vogue or Cosmopolitan or one of those types of lovely uh, pieces of literature, that's what they would tell you that you notice about each other. However, in true Harvard form, a couple of Harvard PhD types decided that that wasn't good enough for them. And they said, we need to figure out what it is that our brains actually think, what they process about a person the first time that you're meeting them. And so they did lots of studies, because that's what they do. And they analyzed our brains, meeting somebody for the first time. And you know what the things that they, they noticed? Our brains kind of register immediately upon meeting somebody. Two things, gender and race. Probably no shocker there. Uh, one of the researchers said that gender and race can be important things to know about another person. So it makes sense that as soon as you see someone, you need to figure out the social categories that they belong to. And then, of course, your brain sends a lot of other uh, things to the rest of your body to tell you how you should act around the, these people, the social constructs that you need to live within, uh, whether or not you're comfortable engaging with a person of this gender or this race uh, defines a lot of that. And all of a sudden you start analyzing everything and that builds the way that you engage with the person that's standing in front of you. Now, they didn't figure out if this is biology or if it's cultural training. I would guess it's probably a little bit of both. But it's fascinating that those are the two things that our brain thinks about upon meeting somebody for the first time. And this morning, as we continue our series in the book of Colossians, I get a fun verse uh, to engage with. And I want to talk about how we can gain a kingdom of God view of gender, race, ethnicity, and diversity. No small subject, right? And we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, 9 through 11. So if you have a Bible with you, or if you want to grab a Bible on the side or in the back, you can feel free to do that at any time. But we're going to read from there, and we're also going to look at Galatians 3, 28. So let's read these verses as we begin. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And then Galatians 3.28 says this. And we no longer see each other in our former state, Jew or non-Jew, rich or poor, male or female, because we're all one through our union with Jesus Christ, with no distinction between us. 
In both of these, Paul's kind of echoing his thoughts to two different churches, written with a couple of years spread out in between these two letters. But he's saying the same thing, that the old cultural barriers that, were, that so strongly guide everything that we do in our interactions with each other are now no more in light of the change that Jesus brought to our world. And this morning, I want us to realize that the barriers placed between male and female, black and white, Asian and European, South American and African, between wealthy and poor, between people with a PhD and people who barely graduated from eighth grade or high school, all of those distinctions that we place so much credit on in our culture that do such a good job of separating us are no longer separating barriers in the kingdom of God. In the church, those barriers have been knocked down. We are all one in Christ Jesus because, like Paul said, Christ is all and is in all. Greg Boyd said it this way. He said that Jesus inaugurated a kingdom in which all nationalistic, economic, and gender distinctives would be torn down and rendered meaningless. You know, as followers of Jesus, as people of the kingdom of God, we have a very big responsibility. Our job is to tear down these barriers. Our job isn't to reinforce them, to add extra supports. Our job isn't to hide behind them and to allow them to, to leave us in kind of a comfortable backseat position. Our job is to tear them down. And here's the truth, and we're going to kind of jump off the deep end this morning, as you can tell. The kingdom of God, which is the church, is not just for people who look like you, who speak the same language as you, and that you're comfortable engaging with. It's for all people. And I'll make it personal here. The church should not be led only by people that look like me. And that's important. Before we pray, I just want to say that I go into a talk like this with a ton of humility and a ton of intentionality. I spent probably twice as much time on this than I usually do a talk uh, because it's a big subject and there's a lot of cultural attachments to almost everything that I'm going to say. And you've probably heard somebody that goes directly against something that I'm going to say at some point this morning. I know that for me as a white male in a position of power, it's tricky for me to talk about gender and race. However, it's in God's word, and so I'm called to. That's part of the gig, right? We want to engage with all that God tells us, and so I want to engage with that well this morning. Because honestly, we've been culturally trained in these areas, and I think Jesus is inviting us to be culturally retrained in a more kingdom of God perspective when it comes to these subjects. And I just want us to have more freedom and joy in how we engage with each other as the church. And I think when we strip the cultural attachments off of it, that there starts to become more joy and more freedom in how we can love, honor, and respect each other. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you right now. I just thank you for your presence, Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing here already. 
we just echo what we've been seeing. We just say that we do love you, Jesus. We love being in your presence. And I ask this morning, Holy Spirit, that you will give all of us humility, give all of us grace as we deal with somewhat touchy subjects. Help us to see beyond uh, our, our own failings in these areas. Help us to see your love, your intent, your purpose for us as the body of Christ to live more fully as the body of Christ this morning. We give this space up to you. I ask that Jesus, that my words will be your words. Speak through me this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Colossians 9. Let's look at that again. Colossians 3, 9. <laughs> it says, The new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. The basic premise that Paul, who's the author of the letter to the Colossians, is starting us off with is ancient. It's really old. It's this concept that through the, the past 2,000 years has been given a title called Imago Dei. It's this concept that we have been created in the image of God, in the very likeness of God. And it echoes back to the creation story of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. At the beginning, before we got in our own way, God's intent was for all people of all races, of all ethnicities, and very clearly of both genders to reflect the image of God. We were made in God's image, in God's own likeness. It's really clear when you read it right here. There's no differentiation between gender in this. Very clear, pretty black and white. And then we sinned. And all of a sudden, everything changed uh, because we kind of got in our own way. And all of a sudden, we were more focused on reflecting each other than we were on reflecting God to each other. We were more focused on reflecting our culture and our cultural norms than we were on reflecting God, the image of God, into our culture. Our focus changed dramatically because we were worried about us instead of worried about God and God's intent for us, God's relationship with us. The change became dramatic, and everything in how we react and interact changed. So when Paul tells us that we're being renewed into the image of our Creator, he's pointing all the way back, and he's saying God's original intention, his original purpose at the very beginning, man and woman all people together created in the image of God, the good news is, is that that's back in play. Because of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, that can now once again be our reality. The spark, so to speak, has been reignited with inside of our hearts, and we can now reflect that out to the world. We can get past our own cultural norms, our own kind of, we can, we can get outside of ourselves and begin to reflect Jesus to the world once again. Imago Dei is the process of becoming like Jesus. 
Because essentially we as created beings in the image of God's own nature are called to be living in relationship with God and with each other, to be God's own representatives in our world, living our lives in ways that reflect his nature. And the good news is this is true for every single one of us. No asterisks, no exceptions. There's no... Uh, intellectual level that you have to achieve for this to be true. There's no skin color that you have to have. There's no gender that you have to have. There's no lesser in this. All equal in the eyes of God. Which brings us to equality. So listen to what Paul says. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, rich or poor, male or female, for Christ is all and is in all. Now, I have zero desire to give you a cultural understanding of equality. Um, if you have your phones and you want to go down a deep, dark rabbit trail, uh, search on Facebook for hashtag equality, and you can watch 50,000 videos and spend your next week doing nothing but that. There is more than enough stuff out there that tells you what equality looks like in our culture. Some of it good, some of it not, some of it whatever. It doesn't matter. What I'm worried about is a biblical view of this term equality. Equality does not mean same. It doesn't mean, in, in, in God's eyes, equality has nothing to do with everybody being the same, looking the same, sounding the same, blah, 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 whatever. It's not about sameness. Equality is about access to Jesus, that every single person has equal access to Jesus, and that e every single person has an equal opportunity in the kingdom of God that we're all given the same access and we're all given the same opportunities to follow Jesus in the way that we have been called as followers of Jesus. That's what equality means in the kingdom of God, in God's eyes. As John Stott said, no racial, social, or gender barrier can come between us and Jesus. Now, you think this surprises you? The original church was like shocked out of their mind by this. Their logic was really simple, if slightly racist, but that's what it was. Uh, they were very, very focused on the way that this was supposed to be because Jesus was Jewish. Don't know if you realize that or not. All of his disciples were Jewish. Uh, and so the logic was that every leader that follows a, a disciple should be Jewish because everybody else has been up until this point. Uh, on top of that, Christianity was known as a Jewish sect or a branch or a denomination, if you will, for about the first hundred years of its life. So it was even a part of Judaism. And all of the previous leaders in God's people were Jewish. Uh, people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, David, Joshua, Solomon, Samuel, and the list goes on and on and on. And if you noticed something within that, it's very specific. Everybody I just named was a man. So there was also the expectation that they would all be Jewish men. This was crystal clear to anybody who was an early follower of Jesus who was Jewish. There was no questions about it. Obviously, for the Jewish people, this breaking down of ethnic and racial barriers in relation to God was ridiculously surprising. 
The Old Testament tells a story of a singular people who were called by God as God's own people, the Israelites. One, one people group. And now the New Testament reality is that every single people group, every single person all throughout the world has equal access to God. Mind blown. It was unprecedented. It was outlandish. It was probably frustrating. There were no books that told them how this was supposed to happen. They were just creating it as they went. That's probably how it fit. It was outside of their cultural understanding, which for Jewish Christians had created the entire framework of their religious beliefs. Now, what Paul tells us is that our cultural understanding has kind of no business creating a framework for your religious belief. So there's that. N.T. Wright talks about this when he says that the ancient world, just like the modern, was an elaborate network of prejudice, suspicion, and arrogance, so ingrained as to be thought natural and normal. But these distinctions have become irrelevant in Christ. In terms of God's will for humanity, these barriers and habits are neither natural or normal. They are a denial of the creation of humankind in the image of God. I'm going to repeat that again because that's good for us to realize. Racial, gender, ethnic, socioeconomic, educational, etc. barriers are neither natural or normal in the kingdom of God because they flat out deny the reality that we have all been created in God's image. No questions. Very, very clear. But with this, let's talk, let's, let's talk difference for a second. Just a second. Because we don't leave our race, ethnicity, gender, political ideology, uh, socioeconomic status, educational level, our ages at the door. Because that's, that's avoidance. That's not what Jesus is encouraging us to do. That's not what this is about. It's not about just setting it outside and never talking about it once we come in these doors and pretending like we're all the same, that we all are just this like monolithic being that's kind of, you know, blank slate every Sunday. No, we're to bring all of that reality with us because in that, our differences begin to reflect the image of God to our world. It's not when we're blank slates that we reflect that. It's when we acknowledge that we are extremely different, that we come from all different types of places, and that the beauty in that is reflecting Jesus to everybody around us. Diversity is God's original and complete design for humanity. It's not an accident. It's not a byproduct. It's his purpose. It's his intentionality for us as humans to be diverse, to be different, and to show that to the world while we're loving and respecting and honoring each other in that. Which, of course, leads to the fun specifics, right? So let's get down to it. Here's what we believe. When it comes to gender, women can should, and hopefully will lead in every single role within the kingdom of God. And I would add society. I think that's a good thing to add. 
when it comes to ethnicity and race. As the church, we welcome everybody, and we give everybody a voice and room to lead. And maybe just as important, we are intentional not to marginalize or to silence any racial or ethnic group within inside the church. In the church, and I think we get this one a little bit better, your income doesn't buy you a seat at the table. We don't pay for pews anymore. Uh, and your educational credentials do not guarantee you a place of influence, although thankfully they don't hinder you either. Uh, you don't, for instance, have to have a seminary degree to be uh, ordained as a pastor in the vineyard, although thankfully, again, that's not a thing that stops you because I have one of those. So there's that. But we, we do a good job when it comes to the socioeconomic and the educational level stuff, I think, in the church. However, when it comes to race and gender, I think we still have a lot of work to do. And so I want to dive into those a little bit more. So in the vineyard, we have an egalitarian view on men and women. And what I mean by that is that women are able to lead in every role within the church, from coffee setup to kid's own teacher to lead pastor. And that last one trips up some people, but that's what we believe that the Bible tells us. And so that's what we go off of. Now, ladies who are called to lead in the room, hear me very clearly on this. I do not want you to lead like me. Sometimes we get caught up in that and there's this like underlying tone that, yes, women can lead, but only if they lead like a man. Like, what's the point? There's enough of us. Like we need women to lead like women, to be who you are, to embrace the differences that we have as genders, to lead in that way. That's what we need. The differences are obvious and we want to value them as important and good. Because honestly, you know what? I'll just let the cat out of the bat. Some men are crappy leaders. That's true. And some women are not called to lead. That's true as well. We're focused on the people who are called and giving them space to live that out, to live God's calling out in their life, whatever that could be, any level that that is. So in the, in the, the process of becoming in the image of God and this reality-altering, kingdom-bringing act of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, things were changed. Things were broken. Since power was broken and the process of restoration between genders was brought about. It's not completed, as we know, but it was brought. It started. It's begun in our world. And part of this restoration is all of us on equal footing becoming image bearers of God, realizing that reality within us. And it can and it should be the reality for us today in the church, just as much as it will be when Jesus returns. We want that process to be done. And the beautiful thing is that this isn't something that I'm just making up that never happens in the early church. Jesus and Paul were two of the greatest proponents of women in leadership. And one of the, the best story turns that Jesus could have given, he appears first to Mary Magdalene. Not the likeliest of persons for him to appear to. He could have appeared to Peter or to James or to John or to one of the more respectable, obvious candidates uh, for going and telling everyone that he was alive. But he appeared to Mary. And you know what title that the early church gave her after that? 
They called her the apostle to the apostles. Now, part of the argument has always been that there are no women that are apostles, but in the early church, it was pretty regular to see women who were given that title here. Mary Magdalene's one of them. And Paul gives that gives these roles to women all throughout the Bible. He recognizes it as pastors, apostles, and church planners. In Romans 16, he tells us about two examples, a woman named Junia and a woman named Priscilla. He says in Romans 16, 7, degree Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So Junia, just in case you've never heard a woman named this, is a woman's name in the original Greek, uh, and thus Junia would have been a woman. So connecting all the dots there. Uh, So Junia here, Paul calls her not just an apostle, but he says that she's outstanding among the apostles. So like, here's Peter, here's Paul, and here's Junia. She's doing something that's like above and beyond what everybody else is doing, according to Paul, a a appointed apostle as well. And not only that, but then you see Priscilla and Aquila. And in Romans 16, 3 and 18, 6, we see Priscilla, who's the wife, named before her husband. Now, if you've ever read name, you know, all the many lists of names in the Bible, you'll notice that they're very clear on their ordering. Like they don't make like accidental mistakes and placements on whose name comes first. They put the person first who kind of has the power. That's how they order it. The important, the influential, so to speak. And so for Priscilla to be named first multiple times in the New Testament, is not an accident. That tells us that at the very least, this husband and wife duo was on equal terms as leaders within the church. If not, Priscilla could have been actually the main. She could have been the senior leader in the two churches that they started in Ephesus and in Corinth. She could have been the senior pastor in these scenarios. These women are recognized as powerhouses. They're strong leaders in the kingdom of God. And I want to get, I'll I'll take it even more personal because my wife's a pastor, if you didn't notice earlier. She was up here. And now, let's just say this. Sarah is not a pastor because I'm, I'm a pastor. She's not a pastor. And I know sometimes we get funny with how we like logically create these scenarios in our minds. Sarah is not a pastor because Rob said, I really want to hire Stephen. And so I'm going to give Sarah a paycheck and a title so then I can hire her husband. No one does that. That would be ridiculous. Rob is way too thrifty to ever give a paycheck to somebody who doesn't deserve it. (laughs) Just saying it. (laughs) That's good. Sarah's a pastor because she's called to be a pastor. Because God called her to be a pastor. God called her to preach, to be a pastor. And that has nothing to do with me. I'm just happy we get to do it together. That's a good thing. This differentiation, I think, is very important because I think sometimes, especially in charismatic and Pentecostal churches, we've gotten a little title happy and we've just given them, it feels like we're giving them away to everyone. But here at our church, if we give somebody a title, it's because we think that God really called them to be in that position. We don't just hand them out. 
So when you see someone that's called a pastor, it's because they're called to be a pastor. F.F. Bruce, a British theologian, he had a conversation about this type of idea. And this, another theologian asked him, he said, so what's your thoughts on women's ordination? You know, and very like British and uh, um, theologian-ish uh, proper, you know, talk. I imagine their backs were very straight and they may have had a pipe in their hand. That's just what I think. And F.F. Bruce looked at him and he said, I'm for whatever God's spirit grants women the gifts to do. And I think that's just like the hammer on the nail. That's like the perfect, perfect way to phrase it. The question isn't if all women should be ordained as pastors. It's not if all women can lead or if all women can preach. The question is whether a specific woman is called and is gifted to do that. And friends, let me say this to us really clearly, because I think that we, we get this confused a bit. The role of the church is not to decide who should be gifted. That's God's job. Our job is to recognize that God's gifted them and to give them the space to do what it is that they've been called to do. And with that, let's segue into racial and ethnic diversity. Because again, true talk, when it comes to allowing non-white and non-European uh, ba ethnic background people to lead in the church, we in America have failed at this in miserable and painful ways time and time and time again. We have flat out been awful at this, like disgustingly awful at times. We have time and time again taken away the voice and the room to lead of people who are not of the racial and ethnic majority. And that's not okay. A couple of examples of this, which I'm sure many of us are aware of these types of examples. Uh, shortly after the, the Revolutionary War, there were a couple of men, African-American men, in a church in Philadelphia. Now, this church was outspokenly abolitionist. They were outspokenly for freeing the slaves. But these two African-American men sat in the whites-only section of the church and were kicked out. Sat in the wrong chair. So because of that, all of the African-Americans in that church left that day and bought a building next door and started the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, which is still going today. All of them left. Later, after the Civil War, it was very uncommon, and I could name names, but it doesn't matter, but it was very common for white abolitionist evangelical pastors after the Civil War to not to be unwilling to give a seat in the whites only section to be willing to give leadership to anyone who was African-American. And these are the progressives in our culture. These are the ones who fought, some of them literally fought for freedom for the slaves. Slavery was gone, but there was still an unwillingness to take down the barrier that God has called us to take down. They still wanted to keep it up. Paul confronted Peter with this same issue 
And he tells us about it in Galatians 2, and he doesn't mince words. It's kind of rough. If I was Peter, I would not have been too happy that this was in there. Uh, but he says in Galatians 2, 11 and 12, he says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he used to eat with Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Peter was being a hypocrite. That's what it is. He was afraid of how the Jewish part, probably the majority at this point, of the church would react if he fully welcomed in Gentiles into the church in an open and honest sort of way. So let me say it to us this way. We are constantly in danger of becoming hypocrites ourselves when we value comfort over God's standard. When we value being comfortable over being like Jesus, we're in danger of doing that exact same thing. We do this when we laugh at slightly or maybe even overtly racist jokes because we don't want to be the, the person that actually calls it out for what it is. We do this when we let our politics guide how we think, feel, and act towards people from Central and South America, towards people from the Middle East, towards African Americans who dress a certain way, listen to a certain type of music, and live in a certain part of Boston. When we allow fear, politics, and the cultural norm to guide us, and we don't even take into account what the Bible and the way that Jesus has called us to live, when we allow that to be the thing that guides us, we are being hypocrites. There's no way to mince words about that reality. We cannot just accept cultural stereotypes as truth. We have to be willing to live differently because Jesus has called us to tear down racial and ethnic barriers of all kinds. We're called to it. It's not an option. Paul had to confront racism in the early church because it was tearing apart the church. And friends, it still is. It's an evil that goes against the kingdom vision that Jesus has given us. If we're ever to fulfill Jesus' cry for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, then we have to be willing to acknowledge that racism is still real, still prevalent in our culture and in our church. And we have to be willing to acknowledge the subtle and not so subtle prejudices that we have inside of ourselves towards other people who are created in God's image. That has to change. Let's get it a little practical as we end. One of the most dismissive things that we can do as the dominant majority culture right here is that we can make, is that we can think that we know what another people group wants. When I, as a white male in a position of power, declare that I know what is best for people of color, that I know what is best for immigrant families coming from different countries all over the world without actually taking the time to sit down and to listen to them and to find out what it is that they actually need, what it is that they actually desire, I'm taking away their voice. And we do this all the time. It's like secondhand to us. It, and it's true for all of us, really. 
So here's my encouragement to us as a church. Embrace our diversity. We have it. Let's not require people with diversity to leave it at the door. Let's give them space to come and invade our dominant culture every Sunday morning. Let's love each other really well. Let's be intentional. Let's seek out relationships. Put yourself in a position where you can learn from somebody of a different racial or ethnic background. And stop being guided by fear and our dominant culture. Be guided by Jesus. We are all one, Paul tells us, because Christ is all and Christ is in all. Let that be real. As we come to an end, I want to invite the worship team to come up and begin to play. Part of the reality of Christ being all and being in all is that since the resurrection, heaven and earth have begun to touch. There's, there's a point where they're connected now. And we have a choice. We can either join our culture and choose to live as people in a dying system, a system that's been going bad for thousands of years. We can embrace short-sighted prejudices and just allow that to be the norm. Or we can acknowledge that God's kingdom has come to earth. We can acknowledge that in Jesus, that the old barriers are crumbling, that they're falling down, that they can't hold up against the reality of heaven, of the kingdom of God. Because he became one of us, quite literally. He took on humanity. He came, subjected himself to pain, to suffering, to death, so that he could break the power of sin and death over our lives, over our world. He is in all of us who are followers of Jesus so that we can live as bearers of God's image in our world, so that we can bring God's kingdom into our world step by step, day by day, choice by choice. As followers of Jesus, let us be so swallowed up so completely in Jesus that our lives and everything that we say and do comes out of that relationship with him. Let us as followers of Jesus of all races, all ethnicities, all genders, all education levels, all levels of socioeconomic status, all educational levels, all ages, be remade into the image of our creator together. Amen. Will you stand? I want to pray for us as we switch to a time of worship that we can begin to find joy and freedom in this reality. Let's pray. Jesus, we just come before you right now, Lord. God, we just admit our failings. God, we just say that we're sorry for the ways that we've been hypocrites. The ways that we've valued comfort over truth the ways that we've wanted to reflect everybody else around us more than we've wanted to reflect you. The ways that we've silenced your children, that we've denied the truth that they are made in your image. Break our hearts with a vision of your kingdom come, with the reality of your will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. We don't want to be people who just leave differences at the door. 
We want to be people who love, honor, and respect each person in the kingdom of God. Let that be true. Come and reign in this place, Jesus. We are yours. I love you, Jesus. In Jesus' name.